The following is a conversation between Katie Hood, Chief Executive Officer of the One Love Foundation, and Denver Frederick, the host of The Business of Giving. One Love educates young people about healthy and unhealthy relationships, empowering them to identify and avoid abuse and learn how to love better. But in the midst of a pandemic, how have they had to reimagine their service delivery program and what can the impact be of distance and separation as well as close quarters to a relationship? Here to discuss all that, it's a pleasure to have with us Katie Hood, the Chief Executive Officer of the One Love Foundation. Welcome back to the Business of Giving, Katie. Thank you for having me, Denver. You know, first tell us a little bit about the history of the organization and the work that you do. One Love was started in 2010 after a young woman named Yardley Love was killed at the University of Virginia just weeks before she was to graduate from uh, college. It was started because her family realized after her death that there had been plenty of warning signs. If a domestic violence expert had been dropped into her friend group, they would have understood what they were seeing, but no one in her life understood the signs, and even more so, they they didn't know where to go for help. So basically, her mom and her sister set out to make sure that other young people understand the signs of an unhealthy relationship and where to go for help because they truly believe Yardley's death was preventable. Mm -hmm. So we've been uh, running a national educational campaign since 2014. We've educated 1.1 million kids through our in-person workshop. And those are numbers that go up every single day. And our ultimate belief is that this is information that should be part of every kid's education, ultimately delivered through the public schools. Well, this pandemic we're going through right now certainly is going to put a strain on many relationships. Let's start with those people who are living together 24-7, day after day, week after week. Have you been hearing from people? What are some of the challenges that they're facing and what are some of the things you're advising? Well, I think one of the hardest things about shelter in place right now is that all typical boundaries are gone. So in a healthy relationship, it's two independent people who also love being together, but they have independent parts of their lives. In this environment, you're together all the time. You're making all your decisions together. There's no independent space. So I think learning how to be in that and to not get frustrated or to get intense about how you respond to that, but really to just accept it as where we are right now and to try to just respect each other's boundaries. I think respect is a huge piece of it. Give each other space is really important. Make equal decisions. So don't have one person to decide what's going to be on the TV all the time. Like make sure that you're listening to the other person and asking them what they want to do. And then I think more than anything, just kindness. I personally have had a really hard time with this. As this has unfolded, it's incredibly challenging to have everything in your world sort of change. So we all get a little bit more irritable. If we can try to remember to be a little bit more kind and not take it out on our partners, that's pretty important too. Yeah, yeah. How about the kids? People who have kids at home too, that's a critical relationship. And that is being put under a whole different microscope. Yeah, and I think that, again, back to frustration, there's a lot of reasons to be frustrated right now, and it's close quarters. Everything in our lives has been sort of flipped on its head. It is really hard if you're a working parent to keep your kids also focused on their schoolwork. There's a million reasons to be frustrated and really being mindful that we don't turn that frustration into intensity and volatility and name-calling and this, that, and the other. But we say, this is a challenging time, and I've got to bring out all my healthy relationship skills to get through it without going crazy. So I think all of us are in the same boat. Have you heard from anyone who is in a relationship with a significant other who they have not seen for weeks and weeks and weeks? Are there 
things that they should be thinking about to maintain a healthy relationship or things that they should be cognizant about if that relationship is getting a little frayed via text or FaceTime or whatever. Yeah, I think one of the positive side effects of this or one of the positive good fortunes of this is that we do have technology that allows us to communicate face to face. And I do think that that is important at a time like this. And I actually think a lot of people are up picking their communication with friends and family because we need to see each other's faces. It's really, really important. It's very hard if your significant other is living far away. You're reading about families where you have first responders and doctors who are living in the basement of their home because they don't want to contaminate their, in a hotel, they don't want to contaminate their family. And that is really high stress. Mm -hmm. um, I think this constant focus on um, boundaries and balance. So having regularity of check-in, this is when we do check-in, this is when we don't, not feeling like sometimes we put pressure on each other to be uber responsive all the time. That's not necessarily healthy either. So I think just trying to come up with some structure and, and some predictability is helpful generally, but also helpful if you're in a long distance relationship. Yeah, that's a great advice. Schedule and routine and things of that nature really can go a long way. Katie, you do so much of your work on campuses and in schools around the country. How have you had to reimagine your service delivery model given this situation? Yes, so our service delivery model, we believe very strongly in the importance of in-person conversations. All of our programs teach young people the signs of healthy and unhealthy relationships through films, but then we gather them in circles to talk to each other. And we've always believed this is incredibly important because there's the knowledge gained from watching the film, but when you sit in a circle with your peers and hear your peers respond, that's where the social norm changes happen. That's when people realize, oh, my friends feel the same way I do, that that behavior is not okay. That's what will ultimately give you more confidence to speak up when you see those behaviors in the future. So obviously in-person gatherings are not happening right now. And <laughs> yep. yet what was really clear to us is this information is as important, if not more important than it's ever been. So we pretty quickly as an organization um, pivoted to figure out how we could start with some online delivery of these workshops. And we have introduced three sessions. Um, we do six total a week, but basically three different types of sessions. One's a virtual workshop where someone on our team, you can sign up and then you can do a Zoom call basically watch a film and have a discussion, and that's been pretty popular. The other is what we're calling Educator Hour, which it brings educators in so they can learn how to use our tools virtually, and, and they can learn how to teach their students in this environment. That's been super popular. Educators definitely understand the value of this program for their kids. They're feeling out of touch with their kids. If I've been heartened by anything, they really miss their kids, and I think they want to continue serving them however they can, so Educator Hour helps on that front. And then we've introduced something called relationship roundups, which are geared towards young people to just give them a space to talk about relationships in the context of the current day, which could be COVID-19. It could be in the context of new media like Tiger King or Love is Blind. But basically, we're trying to give kids the opportunity to talk to each other about this in an intentional way and sort of give them a space of their own. Yeah. So those are three sort of experiments, I would say, that we're running. Um, we're also keenly aware as this moves on that not every school, not every kid has access to digital education. So we're starting to really experiment with ways that we can create non-digital versions of our work, that, so lesson packs or whatever it may be that teachers could download or somehow get to their kids. So what I would say in general is we desperately want the day of the in-person workshop to come back because it's such a powerful learning experience. But I do think COVID-19 is going to force us to really innovate around our product and think about how we 
package and deliver this in new ways that we hadn't really thought of before. Yeah, fantastic. I can hear just by the way you're talking, there is going to be an amplification of what you've always done. And this somehow is going to find its way in, in some capacity, too early to tell exactly what, but that, that is wonderful. What has been the impact of the coronavirus on your fundraising, your fiscal health? I know most nonprofits I've talked to, these are difficult times. How has it been for you and how are you thinking about that moving forward? Yeah, it's had an immediate effect on our financial situation. So our fourth quarter ends June 30th. So our fourth quarter is typically our biggest fundraising quarter too. And a lot of that is special events, community fundraisers. So we are anticipating a 30% hit to our revenue Mm -hmm. based on just the impact of fourth quarter. So, and the bigger concern in some ways is what an extended recession could do. Most of our support is from individual donors. We're really reliant on individuals to drive forward this work. We're fortunately not in a position where we have to do layoffs or furloughs or anything like that because our cash position is relatively strong. But we are very aware that we need to be very mindful about how we manage the business going forward. So we were in super fast growth mode. Um, We've been growing. We're up to, I think we're over 40 people now in six regional offices around the country. And we had plans to continue that growth. We're raising a capacity fund to help us grow more. And that is, it's still happening, but it's getting significantly dialed back. A lot of the new donors that we were talking to, they're understandably focused on COVID-19 specific Mm -hmm. things right now. And so we're really going back to those who know us well and who've helped get us to this point and asking them to double down at this time. So I guess the, the answer is we'll see. We are not in crisis as an organization, which I'm proud of, but I also actually ran the Michael J. Fox Foundation in the 2007-2008 time. So this is like stressful time number two. The answer is it it will really depend on how long this lasts. When we get some certainty around COVID-19, then we'll be able to predict the future a little better. When we see whether these fiscal measures the government's taking, whether they help, how long is the recession going to be? But there is a ton of uncertainty on the revenue front right now. Yeah, that's for sure. So what is it like to be a leader with this kind of ambiguity? How do you lead in a crisis? Lead your team in terms of how how to move ahead and what are some of the things and characteristics and qualities that you've really been leaning on to be successful in doing that? I think for us, it was really essential. If you think about it, March 12th, we were all in the office and then the night of March 12th, we decided no more working from the offices and then very quickly everything unfolded from there. I was super proud of my team because the team itself, when we try to build a culture at One Love of like solutions focus, every person's a leader. Every person has the idea to drive something, an idea forward. And by that Monday morning, our junior team was already meeting to talk about how we pivot the program. So I I checked in with one of our managers on that team on Sunday. She said, oh, we're doing a call tomorrow. We're going to start thinking about how we take this online. So I would first say that my team has been excellent and my team we see where the ball's going and, and we're trying to get ahead of this. I think for me personally, I felt really important that we had to pivot quickly in the first few weeks to a new set of priorities. So this is no longer business as usual. This is crisis management mode. So let's get really specific about the projects that we are driving towards. So there were two of them in our case that we decided. One was this online education and piloting these series and learning and seeing what people want to do and seeing what works and what doesn't. My team asked, what's the measure of success? And I said, well, one measure of success is will people show up? And we've had thousands of people show up, so that's good. The other measure will be, 
do we learn? Like if something's not working, do we kill it fast and move on to something else? Or do we double down on the things that are working? So pivoting to online education was one piece. The second was this May 3rd is the 10-year anniversary of Yardley's death, which is obviously Mm -hmm. not a happy anniversary at all. But it's an opportunity to highlight the good that's come from her tragedy and all the work that's out there now that can help other people prevent the outcome that she experienced. So we had a bunch of different in-person things planned for May 3rd, all of which obviously are gone, but we decided that we really wanted to have a community event. And so in just a couple weeks, we launched Yards for Yardley, which is a virtual race. It was supposed to be an in-person run in Baltimore, her hometown. We turned it virtual. We recruited our leaders, so that could be teen leaders, adult leaders, and we said, we want you guys to be captains of this Yards for Yardley run. The goal is participation. We want to see if we can get 100 million yards pledged by May 3rd, and we exceeded 100 million yards in 24 hours. So right now we're over 500 million yards pledged by people all over the world. It's something like 4,000 different people have pledged yards. Some people are raising money around it. But the idea was we all do need to get exercise at this time. It's part of keeping our mental health. But what if we all dedicated our yards, walked, run, spun, whatever, towards this cause, towards honoring Yardley's life and and really validating this idea that relationship health can and should be taught. And all of us have an interest in seeing that it is. So I think pivoting to those two things very quickly helped organize our team in a chaotic time. All the uncertainty is really stressful on individuals and organizations. So Mm -hmm. getting to some certainty right out of the gate was important. And I think we're about to have to do that again. So now that once May 3rd passes, what's the next set of near-term priorities that we need to double down on? And I think as a leader, giving that focus to your team helps alleviate some of the stress for sure. We've also been very clear with our team that their jobs are not at risk right now, that our Mm -hmm. growth will be affected by this that we're going to have to plan and be smart in fiscal management and we'll see what happens with revenue, but they are secure and safe. And I think that's a really important part of being a leader. If you can communicate that message to your people, being really clear and honest about that too. Yeah. I don't see how you could have done it any better. And it's good to have just two things to focus on. Sometimes organizations have too many things and it gets scattered and no, it really needs some deep focus. And then you turn the page and you do it again with something else that comes up. I know you've been so occupied with the day to day, But if you could take a step back just for a moment, do you have any initial thoughts on how this could affect the sector, both in terms of how philanthropists might look at their giving going forward and things that nonprofit organizations maybe had always intended to do, but now are going to have to do if they're going to be able to survive and then thrive? Taking a step back, I would say... I think it's going to be, well, two things. The first fear is that funding is going to dry up for the sector. Now, I've seen some studies that say philanthropists intend to give as much or more in the year to come, but I think that it's impossible to think there will not be an impact, especially if you're an organization that relies on, I just saw NPRs being significantly affected by loss of corporate sponsorship, for example. Like, there's not going to be as much money around to just generally support good things. So I think it really does force you to think smart about how you invest. Now, I personally happen to be a pretty frugal person. So like I scrutinize, there's not a lot of fat at one love, I guess I would say, but it's forcing us to double down and think more about what's really core at this time. Some of the Mm -hmm. positions we wanted to hire for, they remain important, but they're not wartime investments to make. And you have to think about this a little bit like wartime. Like we don't know 
we had been raising more money every year and had bringing more people into the fold. And now the uncertainty means that we can't just assume growth is going to happen. We really have to look at our expenses in a very explicit way and really think about what scenarios make sense for us going forward. So that's one thing. I, I also think that I always have felt this way. I think nonprofits really need to be clear on the value they're delivering and the impact they're having. I think that with less dollars, I think investors are going to get more focused on funding high-impact organizations. So that puts pressure on folks to articulate the impact they're having with their work. I do think right now a lot of the donors I've talked to are focused on the basics like shelter, food, housing. One of my worries for One Love is are we viewed as a nice to have but not an essential? And I think that what we're communicating to people is that safe shelter in your home is as important as shelter and that these issues remain important and will continue to be important going forward. But I think donors' attention, as you can see it in the alerts I get every morning, like COVID-19 is what everybody's funding right now. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something that nonprofit leaders just have have to deal with. I think the other interesting thing, I think work from home is really interesting to think how the sector will be shifted. We completely moved to work from home in like 24 hours. Yeah. And it's working. So this question of like, whoa, offices, and do we all need to come together physically? Trust me, I am missing the physical gatherings. I think it's like, (laughs) if I ever thought I was an introvert, I'm definitely not. I'm literally missing. I'm missing being with my team. But the truth is you can get a lot of work done virtually. So I guess that's what I would say. Yeah, somebody mentioned me the other day too, is that with the financial stress on a lot of nonprofit organizations, they may take a look at their space and maybe be able to do with a little less space with people being able to work at home because that's usually other than salaries and benefits, the second big line on those 990 forms. What can listeners do to help One Love continue this vital work, both now during this pandemic, but then also in that growth phase once we all get back and, and things turn around? Yeah, well, our vision is that we believe healthy relationships are something that all of us have a selfish interest in wanting to have and wanting our friends and loved ones to have. So there is a place for everybody to get involved at One Love. Obviously, financially, every dollar matters, whether it's $10 to recognize the 10 years since Jardley was killed, $20 because that's about what it costs us to educate a kid, $1,000. All this resource helps us deliver products that are free for anyone anywhere to use. And we're really committed to philanthropically funding this because we don't want kids or communities that don't have the resources to not have access to the tool. So everyone can help. The other thing is, one of the other ways you can help besides money is just learning yourself. What I have definitely found over the last six years that I've been doing this is just introducing the idea of healthy and unhealthy relationships and talking about it and bringing it into your world is part of what's going to be required to really get the social change that we need. It's going to be millions of us actually saying, I care about this. So do an online program. Look at our 10 signs. Share a video on social. Certainly, you can participate in Yards for Yardley and and do that as well, but get involved in some way. Take one step. One thing that is definitely working in our favor right now is people have more time to get involved in causes that they're interested in, whether that's kids or their parents. We've seen incredible volunteer outreach and engagement over the last five weeks because people do love what we're doing and they have more time to focus on it now. So that's an open invitation to anybody listening to be part. We really need you. Well, Katie, I want to let you know how grateful I am to you for taking the time to share this information and these wonderful insights today. Thanks so much and stay well, Katie. Yeah, you too. Take care, Denver.